Today is April 15th, 2014, and this is episode 101. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're going to try something a little different. Andreas Antonopoulos is joined by Chris Ellis in LTB 101 for today's discussion on Bitcoin philosophy. While you don't have to take notes, there will be a quiz. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Andreas Antonopoulos of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today I have Chris Ellis of Feathercoin on the show and we'll be talking about Bitcoin and philosophy. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion the other day and I, I wanted to expand a bit on it because uh, as you know, my part of my heritage is Greek and uh, that doesn't give me any particular insight into Greek philosophy, um, but, uh, but I certainly understand some of the motivations um, behind the, the Greek philosophy because it's still embedded in our Greek culture. I really enjoyed uh, hearing you talk about philosophy and I think uh, we share a common understanding of the need for uh, forming a narrative and creating the right circumstances around Bitcoin. But uh, before we get to that, let's take a step back. Why philosophy and Bitcoin? Well, there is no understanding uh, Bitcoin without the philosophy. And so we should probably start off with why philosophy, right? And this is the question a lot of people get. But philosophy um, is, and I might get into a lot of trouble for saying this because anyone who tries to define it usually does, but it's the what is it it questions uh, previous assumptions and things that we thought we knew to be true. And it's actually more a way of being. It gives us a way of dealing with the unknown and the unknowable. Is what it does is builds a self-knowledge. How do I understand myself in relation to the environment? Because if I understand myself, then it really doesn't matter where I am or when I am. Then I will have the framework I need and a template and a set of tools with critical thinking and so on uh, about how to deal with it and how and how I can learn. Because if I don't know anything about my environment and I don't know anything about myself, um, that's usually not not good news. So it's about learning more so than it is about having knowledge. It's about the process of acquiring knowledge and uh, relating to the environment, right? You've got it. You've got it. And if we if we want to be very particular, we could say it's about taking data, turning into information, turning information into knowledge, and then turning that knowledge into self-knowledge, wisdom, philo, uh, love and Sophia, wisdom. And so you have the love of wisdom. It's a movement. It's a moving Saying that you're going to philosopher, I make no claims to being a philosopher. I'm very insecure about my knowledge. I describe myself as a thinker. Um, I like talking to people about difficult issues, about hard issues, about issues they probably only think about when they're, you know, on a train and looking out the window, but not the kinds of things they would ever think about at work. Um, and thinking about things with no expectation of return. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to get out of this because ultimately thinking results in failure. You, you're, you're, the risk you're taking with philosophy is you don't know what it's going to produce. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. Sometimes the thought will just stop very abruptly and it will make you feel very silly, if you, particularly if you're giving a voice to it to, to other people. Sometimes it will just keep going on and on and on. The thought will just take you to all kinds of places and you'll run out of energy. 
thinking itself is is modeling the world, mm. and in doing so, you're taking something that has infinite complexity and infinite depth, and trying to map it into a finite model that can fit inside your head and yeah. thinking patterns. So, by its very definition, this is a lossy process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you when you take say three dimensions and you map them to two, you lose something in the process. Mm-hmm. So by very the very definition, if you try to create an abstract model of the world, you have to remove most of it in order to understand it uh, even a tiny bit. I find it funny that you say you're insecure about calling yourself a philosopher because uh, that's actually very characteristic uh, of people who are thinkers is that they're unsure. Certainty comes mostly from ignorance, I would say, rather than from knowledge. Knowledge makes you extremely insecure because the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually quite like being being an athlete in in a way. It's like saying you're going to do athletics, education of the body. I'm that's how I'm understanding it. And and it's like, well, what kind of athlete? You know, you could be a runner, you could be a, a rower, you could be a swimmer. You can you can get your philosophy from literature, from art, from film. I mean, pretty much anywhere you can get it from idle talk. You know, just everyday sort of water cooler type conversations. The problem is, it's kind of impoverished when you take it down to the level of what Heidegger will call, you know, the the inauthentic mode. This is existentialism. You know, you're just kind of going around your life. You're not really thinking about what you're doing. You're just kind of getting on with the day to day. It's all about what they say. What did they say on the news? And you reduce everything to this kind of, uh, you know, just average everydayness. And you still get that little voice in your head that says, we're wasting your life. You're wasting your life, you know, and it's there and it's calling you. Um, but you, you're just completely blind to it. And you just get washed away by the general consensus, by just the will, the general will, as Rousseau called it. And also, I, I feel it's apt to sort of say, because I haven't said this before in any of the times where we've met on um, on the Bitcoin group and stuff, I am heavily influenced by people like Robert Harrison at KCSU, Stanford uh, professor, uh, hugely influential, Corey Anton, and the guys at Partially Examined Life as well. So when I, when I talk, I just want to put that in there so that anyone listening to me, um, if they want to learn more, they want to see where my thoughts have come from. Those Those three places in particular have been very, very influential on me. There's something about being able to go out there and and talk with people about things that really matter and have meaningful conversations that I find tremendously rewarding. And I think that's where knowledge comes from. It comes from testing your assumptions and and asking tough questions and being asked tough questions. I find one of the most rewarding parts of my, my job in Bitcoin is the ability to meet with members of the community on a very regular basis and get essentially a free ride along with their uh, community and and learn from what they're doing in Bitcoin. And through that process, I can develop all of the ideas that I then take public and talk about in, in the various shows I do. But really, it's not about me coming up in ideas alone in a room. It's about having conversations every single day. And, and these conversations yank me out of uh, any possibility of getting lost in the mundane because my, my thinking is challenged every single day that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I say to people is, you know, if you're smarter than most of your friends, you've got the wrong friends and you need to move into new circles and people who can test you, not test you so much that you end up feeling terrible about yourself. You know, I'm not saying you should go join CERN or something if you're not good enough at the physics, but you should definitely subject yourself to critical thinkers who can challenge you in new ways. 
there's a whole world out there and it's full of conventional wisdom and it's full of ideas that we take for granted. And if you peek just below the surface, most of the most commonly held beliefs in our world are fundamentally untrue. That's what really fascinates me is that the things that the vast majority of people believe in are probably the least true things out there. Well, that's because, you know, we only get to true through time. And so, for example, let's take notion of a king and a sovereign. Right? A king actually at the beginning of the reign is a rebel. He starts life as a usurper, but ends life as a kind of overweight beast kind of you know, luxuriating in all his glory, that the throne gets too comfortable and he doesn't want to lose his power anymore. And so then you need to have a new king. Now, from our perspective, looking back, it looks like a king is just incumbent. It looks like, like well, this is normal. And why challenge it? Um, but now we're starting to see with the introduction of coin, um, I, I, I don't know about you, well, I do actually, I think I heard you say, you, you, when you first read the paper, uh, you couldn't eat, you couldn't sleep, I had exactly the same reaction. I, I just, it just, I mean, I still don't eat. I still only eat once or twice a day because eating interrupts my thinking. And so I, I want to keep thinking. So I, I don't eat. I just drink coffee and just read and read and read. Um, and this, this whole community really is divisive, the, the Bitcoin community. Okay. Because it divides the curious from the incurious. There are people that are turning around and learning about this interesting new phenomena. Then there are people that are just staring at two-dimensional shadows on the wall, claiming knowledge about the three-dimensional objects they're meant to represent. And you can't understand the complexity and the richness, as you alluded to earlier, of a three-dimensional object by staring at the price, for example. That's that's the common one. And it, it's not to say that the price doesn't matter. It's still an aspect. It's just not the most important one. And, and, and it falls into... A myriad and it, it makes up just one part of a very complex picture. And so I quite, I quite like it that it's the, the, the whole community kind of brings me together with people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. You know, had Bitcoin not existed, I wouldn't have met all these great people that I come across. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously you and, and this show has been, uh, has been great because, you know, I regularly go and, and contact the people that have appeared on the show or look into their work. We met somebody the, the other day at CoinFest in Vancouver, crypto youth. Um, uh, Nathan and Karina have started up this amazing uh, project to take the proceeds of Bitcoin mining or, and various cryptocurrency mining and give it to children uh, that are disadvantaged, children at risk uh, to help pay for scholarships. And this is fantastic. So when, you know, the, these uh, self-proclaimed experts talk about the bubble, I think, OK, but all I've listened to is a, is a, is a, myriad, is a bunch of non sequiturs. It's not that you're wrong. It's just that you're missing the point. You're not right either. And you, what you're doing yeah. is you're approaching this new object and you're just saying, well, I already know what it is. And, 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 and I expect it to come ready-made as well. That's the other thing. It's a real kind of laziness to the thinking. Like it should just have everything built in straight away for me, ready to go. But then other people are more generative. They come to it and they say, well, isn't that interesting? And I wonder what I can learn about this. Or I wonder what, what the possibilities are for this. What could this do for people? What do you mean I can transmit economic value at the world at a distance, at near instantaneous speed and at no cost? Um, 
yeah, it, it just mind boggles, but at least it helps us to identify the good from the bad because that's what money is. Money brings together the honest, the dishonest, the criminals and the police. It brings together everybody in a place and you don't leave until you know why. And I think the people that are approaching this, uh, this new way of being, I would say it's, it's a new way of acting because it's not just about the money. It's also about the work, which we should investigate a little bit. Um, and if you think when people say intrinsic value, they're really saying, I don't find what supports commodity to be valuable to me. It's not important to me. That's a better way of saying it. it's not important to me. Well, it's fundamentally, it's fundamentally misunderstanding the thing for the mm-hmm. symbol, which is an ancient yes. philosophical question. Intrinsic value assumes that there is a thing behind the symbol. And money in itself is really not just a symbol, it's a language, a language for communicating value mm-hmm. between people. Money is not just symbolic in the very basic sense, it's a full symbology of value, and it's used to communicate value in an abstract language for which there is no thing behind it. And that effort to find the intrinsic value is almost like the effort to find the platonic mm-hmm. ideal shape uh, that that exists to give the abstraction reality, mm-hmm. right? That somehow um, the abstraction only works if there is something behind it to give it value. And we know that that's not the case. We know through repeated application and through history that the symbols and languages emerge um, and they serve purposes regardless of intrinsic value. Intrinsic value in itself is almost an oxymoron. Because value is an assigned abstraction and therefore cannot be intrinsic. Value is assigned on a context-by-context basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. Here in the U.S., we take even simple things that should have intrinsic value. Water, Mm. which is life-giving. And you live in a society where water is mostly abundant. And you, you... you put it in a fountain and you throw money in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, and and the, <laughs> there was a cartoon I saw on Reddit. Uh, no, actually on Twitter, somebody tweeted this photo um, of an African child looking up at the Western journalist, and the the caption was, "So, so what you're trying to tell me is that you pee in a bowl yeah. of clean water, and th- that's unthinkable because." There is no clean water in many places in the world. But, you know, what is the intrinsic value of water? The intrinsic value of water is infinite Mm -hmm. when you're thirsty and almost zero when you're not, when it's abundant, which means it's not intrinsic. It's something that's assigned to us purely based on the context, based on how scarce it is, uh, based on our needs, based on our environment, based on our future expectations of its availability. I got into deep trouble over saying that, that even money, uh, even food and water doesn't have intrinsic value Mm. if it is abundant, if it is abundant. And that's the key phrase, of course, there. And even that, because, you know, probably that has the most intrinsic value because it is life sustaining. And even that has very little intrinsic value, not zero, but almost no value when it's abundant. So, 
All of these concepts of intrinsic value represent a fundamental misunderstanding of money. And that's what I find fascinating is that when you talk to people about Bitcoin, you quickly realize that at least like me, they really didn't understand money until they started asking the tough questions. One of the things that Bitcoin is doing is it's starting, or cryptocurrencies in general, is starting a conversation about what is money and forcing us to skip the easy questions or rather skip the easy answers. It forces us to skip the easy answers because it violates the easy answers. And so we find that the easy answers themselves were just mm-hmm. a mirage. So what is money? Something that has intrinsic value? Well, not really. And um, something that can be used um, to exchange value? N- not always. You know, All of the easy answers kind of go out the window, and then you're forced to confront the fact that money is in fact uh, a cultural phenomenon, a language, an abstraction that's much, much more complex then we realize it's not just pieces of green fabric with lots of germs on them that people exchange as if they mean something. Well, it's it's uh, uh, the, the, and the intrinsic value is there, but it's there because everyone agrees it's there. It's it's a consensus. Um, so it, it it is. You're absolutely right. Everything you say is absolutely right. I think what people are longing for is a permanent store of value. And the, and the problem is that time is always going to humiliate us. It's always going to come up with something new, something unanticipatable. And, and, and it's going to show us as false. It's going to say this, look, this was never valuable. Did you not realize? So we're, we're, I think we're the ones putting the, the, the value in there. Are we not? Yes. I, if, if anything, the the one true thing in the universe mm. is entropy. A permanent store of value would be a, a non-entropic object, an object that is not affected by entropy, that lives outside right. of space-time, an object that cannot be corrupted, a uh-huh. platonic ideal. And that's really what we're looking at. Again, is this idea that if if only you had this perfect object that was incorruptible, that was never depleting, that was always useful and in a way that never changed in its usefulness, uh, then that would have intrinsic value. But that assumes a world that doesn't mm-hmm. exist, a world that doesn't have change. Um, and change is the only thing that exists. And it exists. That's in right. Change and, and also the rate of change. I mean, one of the things that's different now any other point of history is that we have such a big picture. We, we can see further back into time and space. We can, we have this, what sociologists call this ambient sociality. Where the whole world is just distanced to me. Like I am so close and yet so far away from a lot of people in the world. And what it does is it makes us responsible. It makes us responsible because now we have the ability to respond. I can now do something to help that person that was a victim of that uh, tsunami. And there's no excuse. I'm running out of excuses, even even to myself, even if there's nobody there to witness me watching the, the story unfold on the news, which I'm getting in real time from many angles. And I'm having it. I'm having all kinds of experts on meteorology tell me all about this, this kind these kinds of weather patterns and the impact that they can have. And even if there's nobody there to see, I'm still ashamed if I don't send the money. I'm still kind of, I've got like a miniature version of society in my head that says, 
but do this. Do you really need that money? And I think what's happening to a lot of people at the moment is, you know, demand for money is sky high right now because people, you know, I think of another way of thinking about money is uh, as, a, as a sort of a liquid or a sort of t- kind of water. It can, it can kind of move, but it can also freeze. And people, I think that, that just want money for the sake of wanting money are just waiting to be born. It's the sum total mass of all of your prior economic energy comes together and manifests as one one block, one one sort of entity in your world that you can then distribute. The word currency, I I, I think um, John Locke applied it as he applied it was uh, currents. So it means not just to flow, but it also means extend the present. Money also gives you an extension rather than just hankering after more and more and more of it. You should actually think more about what you do with it now. What is the what is your net present value? And we've said this before when we've spoken, and maybe we should say it again, that the reason we got into this financial mess in the first place is because the people got lazy and they outsourced uh, wealth management to a bunch of people uh, who then ended up forming an industry that had huge net present value. They had the money now. And that's all that really mattered. And so they went off, they formed gambling addictions, they started, you know, betting, taking all these crazy bets. And meanwhile, people let them and we see the numbers on the screen. This time, those shadows don't really represent what's behind there because they're just pixels. They tell you you have £8,000 in your bank, but do you? Well, no, because if everybody turned up tomorrow and tried to claim it, that money wouldn't be there. This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for April 16th, 2014. Several new code features have been included in the newest version of the Next Testnet software. These include the Next Digital Goods Store, which is a decentralized market for the sale of digital files, and Effective Leasing, a form of pool where you lease the mining power of your stake without actually sending anyone your coins. These features are as yet untested and still need APIs written, so if they sound exciting to you and you're a Java coding wizard, we could use you. The new software also includes code for canonical signatures, a method for eliminating the transaction malleability problem, which was pitched by community members as designed through forum discussions. For more general information on Next or to get involved, head to nextforum.org and check out the Next newsletter on nxter.org. And of course, stay tuned for more news on Next on the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. money as a language is really about time shifting value and resources. It allows you to bring value from the future into the present and to take uh, value from the past and extend it into the future. And so uh, it really is a temporal conversation, a time shifting of, of value and resources, but it also allows us to do space shifting. Now, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies allow us to do both with much greater liquidity and velocity than ever before. And that in itself challenges the assumptions. So if you think about it, we're, we're used to money being liquid, but we're also used to money having a certain mm. amount of viscosity. In fact, we, we depend on mm. its viscosity in order to make sense of our world. If uh, money is in fact instantly transferable anywhere in the world, that violates a lot of the safety 
guards, if you want, or it violates a lot of the assumptions we have about how money works because uh, zero friction money um, doesn't make sense to us. We're used to money that has viscosity and mm. friction built in. And in fact, we depend on that viscosity uh, to achieve certain results, to, to achieve certain goals. So the viscosity itself becomes part of the operating process of money, and it provides a security by delaying uh, the time distribution of money. Um, you can stop a check for five days because of viscosity, and that allows you to take more risk in the present with that check than you would otherwise because the viscosity of the money allows you to have a second Okay, that's interesting, because um, now I'm thinking of latency, and now I'm thinking there are different kinds of that, that, that the, the viscosity issue, that's a great word to use, okay? So there is sometimes this human-imposed uh, viscosity, right? I might choose to save money. In fact, I am a bit of a hoarder, if truth be known. It's because... I want freedom. I want to the freedom to think. And I can't think if I'm worried about things. So I save my money because I need a safety net, a comfort zone where I feel that I can exist and be be who I am. That also has hindered me a lot. Like I don't have a car. I, I live actually a very austere existence. But I like this way because now I get to just as much as I can. Whereas some, for somebody else, that may be completely different. So do you think, is there anything interesting to say about the human-imposed latency and then the inefficiencies in, for example, the banking network, um, where a check gets gets held up, for example, because there's also this phenomenon of checking, you know, this phenomena in finance where, yeah, so they, they take the money yes. um, and then they they hold your check for three days and then they go and gambling on, on the Forex, you know, the, the largest trading uh, uh, market in the world. That's part of the thing. It's, it's, it's really about turning bugs into features. And you see this happen again and again. The idea that you take something that is a delay imposed by the medium, by the viscosity of the system, and then you use that as a feature, as a security control. You try to exploit the viscosity to use it to protect yourself against uh, sudden and unanticipated moves. And then you essentially outsource your security to the viscosity, and that uh, makes the viscosity greater. It also allows people to take advantage of differences in the, in the flow of money or in the mm. viscosity of money um, in the form of arbitrage. I'll give you another example. You know, in the, in the last decade, we've seen an explosion in supply chain, chain integration. Supply chain integration, meaning that in the past, if you wanted to order 10,000 jet fan widgets from Boeing, you would have to do months of negotiating and contracts and things like that. And today, in many systems, these are completely integrated based on enterprise resource planning ERP systems, whereby you can put in a purchase order and you can ask for a thousand JetFan widgets. And literally within maybe 10 or 15 minutes, boxes of JetFan widgets are getting loaded onto a truck somewhere mm. in a warehouse and getting shipped to you. And in the past, this process by taking months could be controlled. So the viscosity of that process actually gave some advantages. It gave you opportunities for operational security. Three or four people had to touch it. Each of those people could interject 
their own judgment. They could notice that something was wrong. They could put a hold on it. They could delay it. They could reverse it. So we took advantage of the viscosity to introduce these controls. Now there are no controls. So now imagine that you are, for example, running a system that's not properly secured and a hacker gets in and they start ordering a hundred thousand widgets from every single one of your suppliers. Now, 15 minutes later, trucks are rolling. It doesn't matter if you intended these orders or not. All that matters is whether you had the credit to support them. It doesn't matter that if these actually do arrive at your factory, you can't do anything with them and you're going to make a substantial loss because 10 minutes after this order went through or someone mistyped and instead of a thousand widgets, they ordered a million widgets because they didn't realize that the unit number was a pallet Mm -hmm. of a thousand, not a single unit. And so suddenly you've got a million widgets, but 10 minutes later, these are rolling in a truck. There goes the viscosity as a feature. Um, and because we've worked on it as a bug and taken it out of the system, automated everything. And now we have to reintroduce controls. We have to put separation of duties and multiple authorizations and human, human authorizations, but also automatic systems like algorithms that check and see, uh, is this, an order of magnitude greater than any order you've ever placed before, maybe pop up a warning and say, are you sure you want a million widgets? Because you've never ordered a million widgets before. Uh, So we've gone from bug to feature to bug again. And with money, it's the same thing. Viscosity of money was a bug. We made it faster and faster and faster. And But at the same time, people come to rely on the viscosity as a security mechanism, are afraid of losing that, and the the multiple layers of recourse that that offers, and have not yet developed new mechanisms like, for example, you know, in cryptocurrencies, multi-signature, pick your own counterparty mm. for escrow and validation. You know, new ways of doing it that do not require viscosity that can operate at that speed, but are just as secure, even more secure. And so we're kind of in limbo at the moment. Um, we've taken away the viscosity, but we haven't actually yet built. Uh, some of the mechanisms to protect people. From well, we have to codify it. We have to ask the, the what is it question. And we have to say, right, what does it mean transmit value across the world? So one of the things that you've drawn our attention to is the my ability to execute at range, my ability to execute my intentions at range. So in the other days, if I wanted to move something, I physically had to be near to it. I had to be sufficiently strong enough or I had to, be able to collaborate with others such that we could move it together. Uh, now, if I want to move some copper from Ghana and some plastic from Taiwan to, to China, the flight here to London, um, all I have to do is buy an iPhone with one click on Amazon. And suddenly I've set about a, a chain reaction. And of course, it's not just me because that infrastructure wouldn't have existed if I didn't have a shared interest. Maybe we should talk about mimesis as well, mimetics, that I want something because you want something. That then manifests to bring about a world where we're all engaged and in, in this activity of constant movement. And yes, it, it makes sense to us because we're embedded inside of the thing itself. But when you talk about viscosity, I start thinking of music. I start thinking of cadences. You know, the, 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 why, why do certain things get clogged up? Because it's also an opportunity for fraud too. When, when you get these inefficiencies in the system, it provides an incentive for somebody somewhere to take advantage of that inefficiency in the system. And they, they face a choice. It can either help or hinder. 
can either be moved by fear or they can be moved by, for want of a better word, love. Uh, I'm meaning that in a, in a very sort of general way. There are two basic emotions, I think, that, that really move us. And one is fear and the other is love. And they either just want to help or they want or they want to hurt. And that's how I feel about the modern banking system. These people are cozy and they seek to make profit from the inefficiencies, that music that I'm talking about in our society. And they, I think they don't know how to ask for help. And one of the, one of the things that we have to be careful with frauds is that, that what they steal from us is actually our time. And what they punish is the hopeful. Because look at right now what's happening with empty Gox. Okay, you have a microcosm of a macrocosm. You've got a mirror image, a recursive image of what is going on out there in the world at large, happening within the Bitcoin sphere on, on a miniature scale, where we have a, a CEO that is prevaricating, that is, um, yes, he's using the truth um, to hurt people. Okay, because he hasn't lied. If you if you look at the, the press releases very carefully, they're very well worded. Um, he is very careful not to lie. In doing so, what he does is he he keeps you up all night waiting for the news, and he always releases it at the very very last minute. There's little to no evidence that anyone else is working for this company other than than this guy. And what he does is he the, the victims in all of this, the, the the customers are clinging on to hope. They want to believe that everything's going to be okay, that they're going to get their money out. And ultimately, the theft the theft is still happening. I don't know whether the, the, the coins are there. I don't know any more than anybody else. But in my opinion, the theft is taking place right beneath your eyes as you allow yourself to be concerned. What frauds take away their attention, that's what fuels them. They don't know how to ask for help. When they move, nothing comes of the movement. They are stuck in negative cycles of behavior. That there is no hope for them. They have the desire. They don't have the hope to to move out of it. And so, yeah. So, so maybe I'm just bringing bringing into summary some of the thoughts that we just said. But um, and, and I say I do that because a lot of people ask the question, "What's philosophy good for?" And the thing is, you've got to know when to stop the thought. You've got to know when to say, okay, let's step back. And what does this mean? Well, what this means is that if you work in a bank or you work for, for a government organization, you need to start asking your boss hard questions. You need to start managing upwards. And if you don't like the answers that you get, if you feel like your time is being wasted, if you feel like the practical decisions that you are forced to make on a day-to-day -day basis are not helpful to society as a whole, to the world as a whole, to other people, you need to get up, turn around and walk out the door, preferably without any explanation whatsoever, because the more time you sit there, the more you're facilitating them. Right? You are actually fueling it. And what you're doing is you're punishing the innocent. Actually, Ayn Rand uh, has a quote. I'm not a big fan of Ayn Rand, by the way, in case anyone wonders, but she did have a, a great quote where she said, when you pity the frauds, when you, when you pity these people, what you end up doing is punishing the innocent. And what that does, that punishment of the innocent, um, it, it, it's all about, uh, let, 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 let me continue this thought. When you punish the innocent, you set about a condition that necessitates communication and collaboration. The reason at the moment that, that the, 
the elites, uh, the world powers, the, the, the mega banks, the reason they're in control is because they can collaborate better than the people on the ground. Because the information in their systems travels much more efficiently. People understand each other because they're brought together by the, by the greed motive. This constant need to hoard, pathological desire to have more and more of something. I feel like we need to stop being the banks and just start looking at ourselves and our role in it. What can I do now? Never mind what has happened. There'll be plenty of time later once we, we set about a new paradigm to look back and, and historians can go through, go through the, the correspondence and, and work out who did what and when. But for now, the only question that really matters is what you're going to do about it. And that's what I think that we can, that we can take away from these observations. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. The BitGive Foundation is a nonprofit charitable giving organization leveraging the power of the Bitcoin community to improve public health and the environment worldwide. Help us demonstrate the significant impact of Bitcoin in addressing these critical issues on a global scale. Support international giving in Bitcoin. Please visit our website at www.bitgivefoundation.org. That's www.bitgivefoundation.org. It's it's hard to see the truth of your actions when your salary depends on not seeing them and when the consequences of those actions are so far removed from the moment of decision. And I've been there and it's not an easy place to be because it doesn't happen suddenly. It happens very, very slowly. You start off working in an environment that, that you find hopeful and positive and then gradually the priorities shift from behind you or gradually you become more and more aware of the the practical and the real versus the the story and the yeah. myth or the promise and then as you do so the cognitive dissonance increases and it manifests it manifests with sadness it manifests mm-hmm. with depression it manifests with anxiety uh, Sub- substance abuse as well, I too. think, as well, you can add to And that. then at some point, sure, absolutely, escapism, all forms of escapism, whether mm-hmm. through substances, through trying not to think, through sports, through TV, through whatever. And then at some point, the cognitive dissonance becomes either overwhelming or you find a way to maintain permanent escape by numbing yourself to everything. 
Uh, I don't think that's sustainable. It's but hard work being in denial, be though. Is that what you're but saying? That, because 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 it's 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 very hard work. Yeah, it's very hard work to operate in an environment that, at some level, you know is in complete contradiction with your principles, where your idea of yourself as a good person is being challenged every single day by the glimpses you get of the consequences of your actions until one day you can't sustain it anymore. In my case, I had a a brilliant moment where I was asked to censor my public speech in order to get a, a contract. And, and, and at that moment, it all kinds of kind of crystallized and I realized that through repeated compromises I had found myself feeding the very beast that I you know couldn't support in principle and I had to do a dramatic change in in my priorities and my actions but it's very difficult it's very difficult even for people who are aware uh, and and most people really you know have other things to do than think about these things. They have practical matters. Of well, they think they do. Soccer I mean, practice well, and mm-hmm. well, they think they do. Yes, it, it's very easy to get distracted mm-hmm. by the minutia of life on a daily basis and and not pay attention to where you're mm-hmm. going. And then yeah. look up and ten years have passed. Yeah, and you're yeah, no that's a that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that that really that that. Denial isn't ignorance. It, it's, it's knowing what the truth is and actually choosing not to see it. And you're absolutely right that we are almost numbed, um, particularly by some of the, the sort of major economic uh, calamities of, of late. Like birth begins with negation. It begins with a prosecution of the past and a, a hope of what could be, of what could come out of it. A hope past will be remembered differently, I think. The, the, the past hasn't finished happening in a sense. The, we always have time to recontextualize and re-understand it in new ways. And it wasn't even that new. I mean, maybe we should just go over a little bit about what this fundamentally is. It is a global dialogue with a memory. It is a global self-stabilizing consensus. And it's backed, ultimately, if you're looking for any kind of backing or intrinsic value, if you must, it's backed against the best understanding we have of the laws of physics. Because we wouldn't have computers at all if it weren't for the quantum revolution around the 1920s. And that is... Physics is, is about asking questions about strange phenomena in our world. It's about building patterns that allow us to be able to circumnavigate our world without falling over, without becoming disorientated, because it builds rules. It says, right, I can make a prediction that is deterministic, that if I put this input in, I'm going to get this output. Then, of course, we have to move up to the software layer. The software layer has to touch down at the physics at, at some point. And then you have come up with some if statements. You have to come up with some conditions. You need to say if this and this. And that's what we were, we were just saying, I think, when we talked about the viscosity of money, a flow of capital, because it's not just money, it's, it's also capital and, and the flow of things in our world. And at some point, 
this has to meet, I think where a lot of people look searching for intrinsic value get stuck is they fail to see, or they don't get as far as page three of the, of the Bitcoin paper for a start, um, which is where the magic starts. You know, this is where he talks the application of, I don't have it in front of me, actually, I didn't come that well prepared, but he, he starts to talk about the application of proof of work. And he brings together the physics and the mind. He brings mm-hmm. together the needs of the mind, this need for um, possibilities in the future, this need for freedom. I don't mean more freedom, more emancipation, like just freedom of movement type freedom. And he does by suggesting the idea. And he, he's, he's quite tentative about it. Satoshi Nakamoto is quite tentative. He doesn't want to say for sure that rewarding somebody with a token on top of the network called a Bitcoin will ensure the uh, actors will behave in an honest way because you can either defraud the network or you can behave honestly and just apply more power to support the robustness of the, of the network in exchange for the reward than it would be for you to, for example, tell your own story on the network for, for you to 51% uh, or compromise it in another way. And he's not entirely sure if you look at the language very closely, he says it ought to. He's quite equivocal. He wants to leave himself some room later on. Maybe we shouldn't take the hash rate for granted. But Mm -hmm. for now, this is a good enough model. And what this is, is truth is repetition, or at least truth is as good as you're going to get its repetition. And So let's talk a bit about the truth behind this, because that's another, I think, very interesting thing about Bitcoin. When you first look mm-hmm. at Bitcoin, it's it's a currency, it's money, it's digital money that really misses the point. Then you've got a network and an implementation, which is essentially a piece of software. And behind that, you've got a community of people. But underlying all of this is the blockchain, is the blockchain technology. And as a technology, it's more useful, I think, to think of the blockchain as a design pattern. It's a new design pattern for distributed systems. It's a design pattern that takes the traditional model of concentric circles around a root of trust and authority mm-hmm. with increasing access control as you go out and moats or walls set around a central authority and it inverts it completely. And it actually makes the authority reside at the edges of the network through this process of collaboration. And it makes that authority cumulative so that the more people participate, authority is achieved at ever higher rates with every passing block, with every increase in the hashing power, with every increase in the constituency of users. Network effect creates authority and Mm. trust in a highly diffuse and distributed manner, which also makes it very difficult to exploit because there's no single thing that you can take down. And this narrative is very difficult uh, for people to understand, primarily because authority has never been diffuse. Authority has always been centralized in most systems. It is a model that's worked very well, but is a model rooted in, in physical power and force, and it is the outcome of the centralization of physical power. In decentralized systems like Bitcoin, you invert that trust model and where previously you had to trust everyone who had access and therefore very few people could have access. 
in a decentralized system, you mm. trust no one. You trust the design pattern. You trust the math. You trust the self-adapting system to reach equilibrium states in which reward or consensus yes. is greater than reward for fraud. And in that equilibrium, the system is not only self-sustaining, but it's also completely open. You don't need access control. You don't need secrecy. You don't need um, vetting. When you trust no one but the design pattern, you can allow everyone to access. And so it completely inverts the trust model. And it creates this new environment where through this diffuse authority, you can establish trust across massive scale with massive participation. But here's the problem. You can't explain that. It's very difficult to explain that narrative because people intrinsically or intuitively associate authority with centralization because that's the only authority model they've ever seen. So when you say, well, Bitcoin has no center, and people will ask, well, okay, yes, Mm. I understand how it has no center, but who runs it? It, it doesn't have a center. Yeah, yes, okay, but who controls it? Well, it, it isn't controlled by anyone. It's really a collaborative function. Okay, but could someone take over the controls? Well, there are no controls to take over. There is no center or any levers of power at the center that someone could take over. And so you go into this circular discussion where people are grasping for the central authority, whether that's a system that's running it, uh, a lever of power that can be pulled by someone, or even an authority figure who is Satoshi. And what do you mean it doesn't matter who Satoshi is? Of course it matters. What are the motivations of the creator of this thing? And, And that's a very interesting question because that is a question born of a centralized authority model. Because when authority is derived by the creator of the system, when authority is derived by who issued the currency, not who uses it, then the motives of the issuer matter. Because <laughs> the issuer still has their hand on the levers of control. The motives of the issuer matter very much. The trustworthiness of the issuer matters because they can exert control into the future of that system. And every centralized authority system we've known requires us to trust a certain authority. The root of trust is sitting at the center. And so with Bitcoin, you pull back the curtain. Well, the question, the question it doesn't make sense to ask uh, you know, who, who is in charge because everyone is. Everyone's yes. a master node. But that's an unsatisfactory answer because the context in which the question is asked is, is so steeped in certain assumptions about how authority and trust works because the only two models we've seen so far are either authority vested in a single individual or authority vested in a hierarchical organization designed to distribute that authority through checks and balances implemented through process. So we use organizational and process tools to control authority, to diffuse it, uh, whether that's the U.S. Constitution creating a a three-tier government or a three-part government uh, with checks and balances, whether it's a corporate governance board where a board of directors uh, vies for power against the uh, chief executive officer to create mm-hmm. balance, essentially to unvest the individual and instead to, uh, to vest the process with a higher level of trust because 
the process is not as easily corruptible. And then we've taken this a step further. And now we're vesting authority in the design pattern and we're diffusing the authority completely until there is no center, not even an organization. And that's a very difficult leap for people to make. It's just as difficult as it was in the Middle Ages for people to think, well, if we give, if we get free, if we give up on the king, if we take away royalty, how do we make decisions? How can we possibly make decisions if every peasant has an opinion? How can we possibly create society at scale uh, without a king? And it was very difficult for people to understand that, mm. you know, democracy wasn't just hampered because the king didn't want it. It was also hampered, primarily hampered, because the peasants themselves weren't, you know, like, hey, this idea sounds pretty weird to me. Uh, at least at least that guy up there in the castle, I know who he is. I know where he lives. Um, and, uh, you know, if he gets if he gets too out of control, we, we, we might actually have one of his relatives kill him and take over, as usually happens. Um, but you know, this, this idea of diffuse authority given to the people sounds pretty strange and radical. There was as much resistance. Well, look, look, look at what democracy is. So it's actually a democracy. It means, um, uh, people and power together. It's a very, very costly model to, to implement. And it came about, it was an innovation of uh, Cleisthenes, an, an ancient Greek ruler, or at least he, he was the guy that, that put in the reforms and that he's the one that gets the credit. But he did it in, res- he did it in response to the mob. He, it, it was, this isn't right. a government formed in a classroom out of theory. This is out of necessity. And what it did is it gave people, the people of Athens, ancient Athens, a sense of autonomy and a sense of self-directedness in a way that, you know, we look back at now and just go in awe. I mean, it's one of the most successful civilizations in the human story. Um, and it was, it's remarkable that it, that it got lost as a system of governance for so long. And now we're getting back, but th- this is all to do with the relationship between uh, the sophos and the demos, the, the experts and people. When I have some information that you don't have that you need, I am encumbered. I have a responsibility. Do I use it for my own private ends or do I use it to help you? It's a choice that I have to make. It's, it, it's not, uh, I don't have a choice about the choice, if you like. And even if I choose to act dishonestly, I've still got to live with that truth myself later on. And I don't think that we can always get away. This is something that comes up in Crime and Punish. Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. You know, when we commit our crimes, we pay for them twice. Once in the punishment that society gives us. And again, of course, myself, that I punish myself for, for the things that I've done wrong. And I think we need to just be a little bit careful that we don't tend, that we don't uh, talk about this uh, centralization, decentralization continuum into a moral issue. What was what was morally reprehensible at the banks was not how they organized themselves per se. It was the actions of the individuals themselves. And in fact, and, and in fact, because, because like I say, democracy is an expensive oh, system yeah. to, to implement. It's very costly. So mostly it's, it's, it's subject to the availability of resources, whether you can be fully, fully decentralized. But actually, I think it speaks to, you know, who were the good bankers? Who are the people who... Mm. Mm. 
It's a matter of scale, Chris. I mean, I think that's the bottom line in that, you know, if we look at banks today and what they're doing mm. is they're yes. failing to scale trust um, because they are vulnerable to large systemic effects. But that is something that happened over time. If you go back to the 16th century, when you see the first uh, commercial institutions evolve from out of the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company and um, all of the expeditions that were happening and the, the creation of the modern corporation, the creation mm-hmm. of a modern open banking system, the creation of the modern stock markets and, and the ability for individuals to invest in, in corporations, which up to then were royal charters. The investors were the aristocracy and only the aristocracy. And it wasn't because of a lack of money. It was, it was about, um, you know, the scale, the ability to scale these institutions. So if you look at banks then, they took something that was only the purview of kings and they gave it to, let's say today, a billion, maybe two billion people have the economic tools Mm. that only kings had in the 16th century. So banking was a huge equalizer. Uh, it was a system of, of equalization and meritocracy. Uh, the modern currencies, the same thing. The modern corporation, the same thing. Mm. All of these were um, systems that flattened power, mm. that took it out of a pyramid structure and squashed it. But what happens over time? As the base of the of this system gets wider mm. and wider and wider, it starts looking like a pyramid again. It fails to scale. And what we've seen now is really the egalitarian uh, moves of these systems or the egalitarian impact of these systems gradually diminishing over time until it starts operating contrary to egalitarian principles and starts reconcentrating power. And that's really a failure to scale the system. It's a failure yeah. to make the pyramid flat, so it starts getting pointier and pointier. Um, what Bitcoin does is it simply Mm -hmm. unlocks the next level of scale. It's like achievement unlocked. You manage to go from the 1000 Kings to the 1 billion peasants level of economic scale. Cryptocurrencies will take us from the 1 billion peasants to the 7 billion human level of scale, uh, because we can scale them better. And at some point they're also going to fail to scale. And and we're going to need to disrupt that pyramid too. I mean, that is the endless cycle of change. That is the entropic nature of the universe. The things that start off as great egalitarian forces end up becoming uh, power systems. Uh, th- that, that's great. That's a wonderful exegesis yeah. there. And I would say, yes, it's a, it's about understanding the small in relation to the big. This is about bringing together the public and the private interests. So you have the, the local private interests of my desire to make money. Then you have the public interest, which needs stability. It needs consensus. It needs a form of agreement. And that's what the, the blockchain network does. That's for, for me, that's what I find important about it. And that's why I think it has intrinsic value. So you talked about scale. And maybe that should bring us on to 
the socioeconomic implications, particularly the sociology, because a trustless network doesn't rid us of the need for trust. On the contrary, it actually makes trust more important. And in particular, you should probably, and your listeners should probably um, look up at the, the idea of stranger interaction in sociology. Um, and this is the, the chances that we take on each other before we know each other. Those kind of thin slice, if you also look, that's another key word, okay? We all walk around with a very, very thin slice of information about the world. And yet, I've still been here for more than three decades and I'm doing pretty well, even though I don't have very much information on what's going on. stranger interaction it turns out that if you put up a sign in a street that says we'll pay you one dollar talk to a complete stranger people do it and they don't even do it for the money money just excuse the money just says it's okay you to do this you kind of want to do it but it gives you an excuse and so then we so so now we're at the, the, the sort of sociological layer um we can talk about the need for movement, the need for change, not just at the, the, the levels we've talked about already, but also that you might need to change the people that you hang out with. You might need to be able to, you know, in order to create this new business that, that you've been dreaming of, you might need to meet somebody new that can add something to your life that hasn't happened before. And also the sociological layer, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about a mimetic desire, like I find Bitcoin valuable. I've got spoken to hundreds, if not more than a thousand people about Bitcoin. This, this last year, uh, from about February onwards, I, I got really immersed in it. It starts with intentions. They want to know why you're telling them about Bitcoin. Because if they're going to change everything, if they're going to suddenly, oh, no, I have to think about my money now, I thought I could rely on that. They're going to want to know why, and they're going to want to know what's in it for you. If I agree with you that this should be valuable as well, if I align my interests yours, what do you get out of it? And if you get something out of it, am I okay with that? And what do I get out of it? And what does everybody else get out of it? And you, and you can't even, it's difficult, this issue of manipulation. Uh, and I mean like psychological manipulation. It's very difficult, I think, when people talk about Bitcoin to, to make it sound like this is good for everybody. And I think that has something to do with the deflationary economics that, that are built into it. A lot of people say, well, if it's deflationary, isn't everything going to get bunked up? Um, and they, they don't understand that, you know, surely we need more money. What they don't understand is the concept of infinity. They don't understand what the difference between infinity and eternity. Eternity is that which has no direction. It just is. It's as much inside as it is outside. It doesn't know boundaries. It doesn't have limits. But infinity can last forever, but it can also have a direction. So yes, you can, you, you can take an ounce of silver and you can keep dividing it up in, into infinitely small pieces. So long as you can identify and discern 
the two piece, every uh, piece of silver that you're taking off, that's fine. And as long as each one is equal and fungible, that means they can be exchanged for the same amount. You know, a Bitcoin is worth a Bitcoin always. That's okay. But you're still left with the finite ounce that you started. And that's the important way is that you, you get an infinity and you get value creation within the currency supply that's still tied to a finite hole. When you start printing more money, when you break that promise, the, the, the fixed issuance promise that you made at the door when people came in and you said there were only going to be two one million coins or, or whatever uh, your, your total supply is going to be, what you're doing is you're taking all the work that people did in the market is all of the price discovery, all of the price comparison websites that you went to. That's work. It's minimal work, but it's work nonetheless. You are providing value. And then the central bank says, well, let's produce another silver coin. And now you'll get, this is where the theft is in. This is where the fraud is. Because now what you're doing is you're taking all the work that the people did on the ground, out there in the world, price discovery, and then you're choosing to give this new ass to who exactly? It's your friends, presumably, right? You're going to give it to the banksters. You're going to give it to your friends in government. You're going to give it to, it's, it's nepotism. You're going to give it to the people that are closest to you. And as a result, they're going to, for a, for a short time, enjoy some of the benefits of this new ounce of silver, because for a while, it will still have the properties of the value that was generated in the first ounce. But over time, people start to realize, actually, this money is a little bit more abundant than I thought it was. And anyway, it's not the money I want. It's what it buys me. Money doesn't want to get too valuable because then you, you want it too much. It, it can't lose its value too quickly either because, you know, then people start misallocating their, their money. They start putting it into things they don't really need um, just, just in order to, to, to preserve the, the capital. And so this, this fraud is very subtle very it's uh, oh actually yeah we, we talked about the republic didn't we in in the republic i think plato brings up this commonality between rhetoric and relativism that i what i find when i go out and i try to talk to people about bitcoin i usually start it from the issues that affect them the most so if i'm talking to a bar or something i'll, I'll bring up notion of fees on the visa network and the, the chargebacks and all of that kind of thing. And what you tend to find is that they'll say, oh, well, it's all, you know, what, what you believe and what I believe, it's all relative, isn't it? So you could just use clever language. You know, this is the rhetorician. You could use just clever language and you could just blindsight me. So yes, I hear what you're saying. And that sort of makes sense to me in, in, in a logical way. I don't know whether you're too clever. I don't know whether there's something that you have that I don't have. So the way I find is best, uh, just bringing this back now to where this theme started with with uh, mimetic desire, trying to get other people to want something because you believe it, that it, that it that it's good. Um, I think what you have to do is be very patient. If it's obvious that this person doesn't, you know, it just doesn't have the time right now. They've got a lot going on in their lives. I think the appropriate thing for you to say, okay, I, I really. Res uh, Thank you for, for giving me your time. If you've got any questions, here's my email address and just, you know, write your email address on or something. But if you find that they're interested in this, I, what I would do is I would start with Bitcoin. And if they are interested in it, you, you can then move into, you know, the wider ecosystem, the altcoins. You can talk about the, um, all the businesses that are growing out of this, the, the, the business opportunities that are emerging. And then I think you make your way in. So yeah, it starts with their problem first. And then it's about 
being patient, making sure also make sure you don't make them feel silly. Sometimes people don't like it when, you know, somebody knows something that they don't because they perhaps like to feel like they're very clever. Be sensitive to that, particularly if you're going to get into the technical stuff. I wouldn't talk about mining um, as a rule, certainly not on your first go. That's that's very sort of pro. That's quite high end. You want to leave that until a little bit later. And so then we've gone from the physics, sociology, and this whole thing hangs together with those wonderful adjectives we call numbers, those things that are universal understood the world over, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what language you speak, everybody understands the concept of one, two. Everybody knows how to describe the quantities in their world, uh, the sequences in their world. And that's what, for me, makes this, this really powerful. Well, that's the essence of a design pattern, really. If money is a language and value is a symbolic and abstract thing that we assign to things using the language of money. It's a shared cultural system. It doesn't have existence outside of human culture. Mm -hmm. And money, money isn't something that you see outside of human culture because it is human culture. And it doesn't have value outside yeah. of human culture because, again, it's just an artifact of, of human symbology. But you know, within that system, we we create the stories that allow us to understand money and to use that conversation, to use the language of money, essentially to create more efficient ways of interacting with each other. If we mm -hmm. didn't speak the same language, we can still communicate through pantomime and mimetics and hand gestures um, based on our shared values. I can explain food to any human mm -hmm. in the world by making a few hand gestures because we have the same shared cultural understanding of food, um, which is a biological understanding. And explaining money is harder, but at the same time, it is a shared language because it allows us to interact with people uh, in a much more efficient way uh, than trying to transact with physical things um, that are not abstract. And so it's hard to explain money. It's hard to think about money. But in the end, it's something we do all the time. In, in some ways, money is one of the oldest inventions of humanity. Its history goes back hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, it's, it's as basic as fire and language and probably started appearing soon after fire and language, um, basic tool making leads to the creation of yeah, that, that. forms of intrinsic value and then symbols that represent yes. that. Um, so, you know, this is a very ancient conversation. And part of the difficulty here is that people in the present are not aware of the fact that this is a conversation that's been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. And that a lot of the things we take for granted are more uh, a reflection of the medium we use to speak the language, quirks of the language, colloquialisms. We use colloquialisms of paper money. We use uh, speech patterns and habits and little expressions that really speak to our common understanding of paper money and increasingly of credit cards. 
And they color our understanding of money because we have these little quirks of language. Um, and that's why it's important to have this discussion. Uh, I, w- I grew up bilingual. And one of the things that I realized very early on is that having mm. two languages to draw from uh, very quickly gives you the ability to start comparing. And comparative linguistics opens a whole window um, of understanding because suddenly you realize the difference between things that are intrinsic to the language and things that are part of what you're trying to express with the language uh, and how different languages handle these little quirks. Well, now everyone is offered the opportunity to be fluent in multiple currencies and multiple currencies not based on the same model, but multiple current currencies that derive from completely different models. Just like speaking Mandarin and English gives you one of the deepest levels of comparative linguistics because you have some of the fundamental constructs in the language completely um, conceived differently. Cryptocurrencies and fiat uh, give us a very, very deep comparative um, numismatics. It gives us the ability to talk about money in a new and interesting way because for the first time we can compare to radically different concepts of currency. And that doesn't mm. just teach us about cryptocurrencies. I think more importantly, it's teaching people about currency in general and helping them understand the money they already have right. and, and so now, better than they did before. Okay, uh, That's the new conversation and the narrative oh, yeah. we're having. Like, well, the, the, the question of, okay, now what? Um, like you say, to continue on from where you're saying, um, that this is about uh, value created around lines of trust and culture and not around national borders anymore. And I think what the point is justice. And I think that this technology can help them get that because you've got a monetary system where the regulation is baked in by design. Ethics are baked into the code. You don't have to have a police officer to go around enforcing the double spends. Everyone's a police officer because everybody is, you know, downloading the the wallet software. Uh, every wallet software is a masternode. It will trace every transaction and it will verify the validity of the blockchain, of the public ledger. All of the claims, all of the economic claims that have been made on the network will be verified independently by each node. Right, exactly. So... It's ironic because people say Bitcoin is unregulated, whereas in fact, Bitcoin is regulated. It's regulated by convention. It's regulated by algorithm. It's regulated by our shared understanding of the protocol. And that means it's regulated by every one of us. Where it takes away counterparty risk Mm. mandated from the outside, it gives us the opportunity to add the counterparties of our choice with things like multisig. It challenges our very notions of where the source of authority is and how to conduct ourselves in a system where deterministic resolution of transactions is possible based on this shared consensus where you not only know what's happening on the Bitcoin network through uh, examination of the blockchain, uh, each individual client can independently verify each transaction without external recourse, simply by looking at the proof of work that is embedded in the blockchain. But not only do you know what is happening on the Bitcoin network, you also know that everybody else knows 
mm. what is happening on the Bitcoin network. And you also know that everybody else knows that everybody else knows what is happening on the network. So it's not just that you're applying the convention to arrive at a conclusion or to derive some knowledge. You know that everyone else is applying the same convention, and therefore you can predict that they will arrive at the same conclusion. And finally, you know that everybody understands that this convention is broadly shared, and therefore everyone can predict that the entire network will arrive at the same conclusion through this process of consensus. And that's kind of a very beautiful thing. It's a very elegant thing because it is the ultimate kind of extension of knowledge. Mm. It's not something I know. It's something I know. I know that you know it. And you know that I know that I, <laughs> you know it. And it, it sounds like a rabbit hole, but in fact, it's, it's a very important principle of knowledge, uh, which is, which is that shared understanding, that shared consensus, which allows us to make deterministic predictions about what will happen on the blockchain. If I look at a transaction, I can tell you whether that transaction will be verified because I know that everyone will use the same approach to decide that question. And that is extremely powerful because it means that you no longer have to rely on trust outside of your own understanding of the system. And it, it will be a very powerful form of justice because that shared understanding cannot easily be violated or confused or cheated by anyone acting against the common consensus uh, when everyone is marching to the same beat, that 10-minute pulse of block confirmation through increased mm. proof of work. It's very easy to notice the one actor that's trying to march against the beat. It's very difficult to march against that beat. So yeah, this is a new narrative, and it's one that will take some time to understand. The ones who are most steeped in the old narrative are the ones who are going to have the greatest difficulty adapting to this. And this is the, the same for bankers as it's been for scientists and any other profession. Uh, you tend to uh, use the existing yeah, paradigm if you're, if you're to not, form your worldview. Well, and if you're not willing to give up the need to be right, that, I it's think. very difficult. No, I wouldn't either. Um, I, I think there's an interesting realization. Mm. The interesting realization is that bankers themselves as individuals are for the most part uh, nice people. And for the most part, they're doing a good job and they're living in a system where they feel that they're getting properly rewarded for delivering uh, the centralized trust that people need. And in that respect, um, they're doing good. It is only as a system as a whole where the systemic compromise at every level and the opportunities for corruption mean that as a whole, the system doesn't do good. But most individuals in the system are really just, you know, uh, moving with the flow. But the nice news is that with this new system, because it's completely external to the traditional banking system, we don't need their permission. And, and just like many uh, decentralization movements in the past, the people in the center are least likely to give you permission to decentralize them out of a job. But it, as in many cases, they have no control over it. The most disruptive movements are the ones that remove control over the future of the disruption from the people who are most likely to be disrupted. And Bitcoin doesn't need anybody's permission. Cryptocurrencies as a design pattern can be adopted on an individual by individual basis until the reality of it is simply 
is simply momentous and, and mountainous and insurmountable. Yeah, that, that's that bang on. Uh, Everything that you point, said is, is absolutely on 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 the button. The bankers, um, yeah. I would say that actually that the blockchain tells two stories. It, it tells a story to us in the present about the transfer of value, but it also tells a story to the future. You've got to think about this as a permanent ledger, a permanent record. And the history is going to look back at the things that you did. And it's going to be very, very difficult to separate your identity from your actions on the blockchain over time. You can do it very weakly. Like you've spoken about before, weak pseudonymity. Um, yes, you do get uh, some anonymity. And of course, with anonymity comes authenticity. You're able to explore new ways of being, um, new sides to yourself that perhaps the society you've embedded in didn't let you. But over time, that anonymity is going to look very, very temporary. And I think we all need to think about the way, what, what history are we leaving behind? What are we going to leave behind for the people that come later? Yeah, this uh, mm. the adage is that uh, once something is on the internet, it's on the internet forever. Just got amplified <laughs> massively and, with the and uh, blockchain. It met, and it mattered to you. Blockchain. These it are really economic claims that you're making. This is, if you, if you don't have money, you don't have sure. a voice. And and this is the thing. And so whatever you're doing with your money is is going to speak even more about the kind of person that you are. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation about the nature of money, the nature of reality, philosophy as it applies to Bitcoin, intrinsic value, the future of justice and decentralized systems. As always, a, a, a great pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for listening to episode 101 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for this episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos and Chris Ellis. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. Have a good one.